The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 32 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that my president past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, we've got a great show for you tonight. The Chief Security Officer for one of the largest cybersecurity companies in the world is going to be with us. None other than Rick Howard, the CSO of Palo Alto Networks, is going to rock it with TF7 this evening about a variety of different cybersecurity topics. I'm, I'm super stoked to have Rick on the show, man. He's a, in his, he's a great guy. In his capacity over there as CSO for Palo Alto Networks, he's responsible for the company's internal security program, as you can imagine. He's also responsible for the oversight of the Palo Alto Networks threat intelligence team and the development of thought leadership for the cybersecurity community. So his prior jobs include being the CISO for TASC, uh, the general manager of iDefense, and the SOC director at Counterpain. He, Rick's a patriot. He served in the U.S. Army for 23 years and spent the last two years of his career running the Army's computer emergency response team. So Rick holds a Master of Computer Science degree from the Naval Postgraduate School and an engineering degree from the U.S. Military Academy. He taught computer science at the Military Academy and contributed as an executive editor in two books, the first one being Cyber Fraud, Tactics, Techniques, and Procedures, and the second book was Cybersecurity Essentials. So I've seen Rick you know, speak at events and, and several times before. He's a great speaker, great speaker. He's, he's very well uh, known among the cybersecurity community. He's one of the most well-respected cybersecurity professionals in the industry. I can guarantee you that. And so I see him as the epitome of a tier one guest, and it's the reason why you're all listening to the show, because we get people like Rick to come talk to you and, and give, give you their opinions on what's going on in the cybersecurity space. So stay tuned. Rick Howard coming up on the second and third segments of the show. Before we get to some cybersecurity news and analysis, I want to thank Dr. Rebecca Wynn for coming on the show last week and breaking down the new GDPR regulation about to go live on May 25th. So as usual, she gave us a great show. She's got a lot of information. I mean, she's truly intelligent. She knows her business right off the cuff. I mean, you could tell she's just very knowledgeable about what she does. And if you didn't get a chance to hear her yet, it's never too late. Just, you know, just 
find your favorite playback medium, search for Task Force 7 Radio, look up the latest episode, that's episode number 31, last week number 31, named What Types of Data Are Subject to GDPR, and Dr. Rebecca Wynn appears on the second and third segments of the show. She was awesome, folks. I mean, you know, she's a wonderful role model for young women, and not only in the cybersecurity industry, but in, in business in general. So if you're, if you're a young woman out there, a young professional, whether you're in the cybersecurity business or not, I highly recommend you listen to the show. You know, Dr. Re- Dr. Rebecca Wynn knows how to navigate uh, any type of, uh, you know, corporate uh, model and, and business model out there. She is uh, uh, very well respected, and she's been very successful. So... You know, congratulations and thank you again to her. So you can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at Task47Radio.com, and of course the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fixed. So wherever we're folks, you can't miss this. If you just Google Task Force 7 radio, you get all your options. It comes up like three pages of options now, I believe. I mean, check us out, folks. TF7 radio playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And please don't forget to subscribe. We monitor that, and that's very important to us. So thank you very much for, for doing that. So if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For all inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I do read all my email, folks. It takes me a while to get to it sometimes, but I can assure you I do read all my email, and I really appreciate everyone that reaches out to me with suggestions for, for future shows or, or maybe future guests and things like that. So great stuff. I appreciate it. Um, speaking of communications, you know, I, I received a very nice text message last week from a colleague in LATAM who's a fan of the show. And he complimented me on the show. You know, he said it was a great show. It's a great way to keep on current events and cybersecurity. He said he loved the guests that, that, that have been on. He said he was excited about that. He told me he listens to the show every Tuesday morning on the way into work, which is you know a great thing about playback. A lot of the people have told me the same thing. They listen to the show on their commute on Tuesday mornings, and uh, that's great for doing that since we have a fresh show broadcast every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. Pacific. 5 p.m. Pacific for those of you who are on the rush hour on the way home on the West Coast. But for some of uh, the folks on the East Coast and other time zones around the world, a lot of listeners opt to listen to the show on playback because, you know, when it's more convenient for them. A lot of people have family time and events on Monday nights and things like that. But he also had some suggestions for me. And he said that his colleagues, who all speak English as a second language, have trouble understanding me sometimes because I speak too fast. So, you know, when I first started this program, the producer was telling me that, hey, look, man, you got to slow it down. Yeah, this is radio. I got to slow it down. And he said, once you get rid of the nerves of being on the radio and everything, you'll slow it down and then we'll be all good to go. You'll see. And I told him, hey, look, it's not me being nervous. Like, this is the way I talk. 
You know, and this is my New York pace. You know, my, my mind moves kind of fast, and I look, you know, an hour flies by, and there's so much to cover. I just want to make sure I get it all in so that, you know, I get as much information for our listeners as I possibly can. And of course, you know, the episodes went by, and I didn't slow down because that's the way I talk. And although sometimes I, I, I do try to make improvements, I do need to be conscious about this, right? So having said that, our listeners, you know, told me, that he and him and his buddies, like they sit around and have conversations about the show. And during the discussions, they often sit around and, and ask each other what I said or what I meant by something because they don't understand what I said because I speak too fast. And it's, uh, you know, this is English is their second language. And sometimes even third. I mean, these guys are, are very intelligent. They speak multiple languages. So I'm, I'm going to try to try to fix that. Right. I'm making a pledge right now to make an effort to slow it down for our listeners, especially for Spanish-speaking listeners who tune in to hear the show in LATAM. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the kind note, you know, the words of encouragement, the words of appreciation that you gave me. It really means a lot. And for all you listening out there, I'm humbled that anyone would take the time to listen to what I have to say, really. I mean, thank you so much. Um, some quick news and analysis before the CSO of one of the biggest cybersecurity companies in the world comes on the show tonight. I only have time for one story because I, I plan on having Rick on for at least 42 minutes of the show. It's too much of an opportunity not to get him on as, as much as I possibly can on the show tonight. So I just want to go over one thing that really caught my eye, though, last week. And this is an article by Dan Gallagher of the Wall Street Journal on May 11th that reports on the massive sell-off going down with Symantec stock. I mean, the stock down a whopping 33% after its audit committee announced an internal investigation made in, in a disclosure in the company's fiscal fourth quarter report late Thursday afternoon, which also included a revenue outlook for the current fiscal year that was below Wall Street's forecast. So Symantec said it notified the Securities and Exchange Commission and executives declined to take questions of any nature on the subsequent conference call, leaving the market very jittery, of course, right? People don't like uncertainty. And this introduced a lot of, you know, a great deal of uncertainty about the status of the company. And one of the things that troubles investors the most, as you, all of you know, is, is uncertainty. They don't like that. So, Symantec executives did say that they weren't hacked and they didn't have any compromise of any type, meaning there was no compromise of data or destruction of any other systems or any kind of, you know, problem with their software. So, that coupled, though, with the fact that, in my opinion, that the audit committee was involved, right? The, the SEC has been notified, right? The company has hired a third-party independent counsel to advise them on the investigation. And then Symantec stated that the outcome of the investigation may affect its previously reported financials as well as all of their future projections and the general outlook for the company's future uh, as, as they've previously stated. So... And that makes both past and future numbers really hard to rely on for investors. So they were, you know, rough day, rough day for Symantec. And it seems now that that Symantec looks extremely cheap. If you look at the, the stock price, you look at the at their uh, at their you know at their current financials. If you take them for what they are and not what they may be, and the uncertainty around what they may be, right? Who knows? But they're trading at 12 times earnings. While the Wall Street Journal points out that it looks like it's the cheapest cybersecurity play in the market. So although the Wall Street Journal pointed out that the shares also dipped on news that revenues did not meet projections in the latest report, Don Reisinger of Fortune magazine reported last week on the same day that the Symantec report came out from Wall Street Journal that the Symantec had sound financial performance during the last fiscal year, which saw revenue jump 21% to $4.8 billion year over year in earnings per share hit $1.74 compared to a $0.17 cent loss during the previous fiscal year. 
That is, as long as those numbers don't need to be adjusted as a result of the internal investigation, and that seems to be the problem that's causing the chaos. So shareholders were obviously routed by the disclosure. The market didn't like the news at all. Semantic shares closed down over 33% at a price of $19.52 a share last week. What's more, Semantic didn't say when the audit committee's investigation would be completed, leaving the uncertainty sort of dangling out there for a while, at least for the near future. And they cautioned that the investigation likely won't be done in time for Symantec to file its 10K annual report. Despite the ensuing chaos, Symantec declared a quarterly cash dividend of 7.5 cents on Thursday. So I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network. That's Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest. And look, I'm really jacked up about this, if you can't tell. The chief security officer of one of the largest cybersecurity companies in the world, Rick Howard of Palo Alto Networks, coming right up after these short messages. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the Chief Security Officer of Palo Alto Networks, Rick Howard. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. I'm glad to be here. Right. It's great to have you. So, in your opinion, is there any evidence that the types of scoring and risk matrix methods widely used in cybersecurity today actually improve the judgment of, of cybersecurity professionals? In other words, are, are, are the standard risk frameworks that are implemented in cybersecurity space effective today? Well, I think the, the risk frameworks are pretty good, right? They're great guides, but 
they're not the sole measurement of the risk to your organization. For example, if you were looking at the NIST framework, if you are level four, level five on that framework, it doesn't mean that your risk is low. It just means that you have a pretty mature organization. But what you really need to be thinking about is how well you're protecting your organization from material impact. And I think that our entire industry has been doing this completely wrong for 25 years. I know that I've been doing it wrong for 25 years. Because what we typically do is we, we list out all the things that could possibly go wrong in the, in the enterprise. Right? And, you know, right. for some organizations, you know, it's 150 or something like that. And we rate them high, medium, or low, or red, yellow, green. And we sort them by color, and we get these heat maps. Right. You know, we, we show the board that, you know, here's on the top right corner, here's the most important things. And there's just this unbelievable amount of research that shows that science is really bad. When you have 150 project points there, I mean, is that even possible to, to, to monitor and maintain? Can you, you know, make something out of that data, even though it's so large? Well, I mean, I guess you can, but, you know, these are all, and what we typically do, these are, you know, guys like you and me, we say, oh, here's a technical thing that could possibly go wrong that may have a big impact to us. You know, so we just list them all on a spreadsheet, so not a, there's not a whole lot of rigor to it. Um, right. But I will tell you, I will tell you, though, that there, people are, are rethinking how to do this. And uh, I got on this topic a couple years ago. I read this book called uh, Super Forecasting. Have you heard of it? Yes, I've heard of it. Yeah, I haven't read it, but I have heard of it. So, uh, Dr. Tetlock wrote it. Uh, he's been writing stuff about risk and forecasting for years, over a decade now. Um, and uh, he got the reason he wrote the book is he got angry. He's watching CNN because they brought a pundit on to, to make a prediction about something that might happen in the future uh, because that pundit got something right once in his career. He's never been right. So. <laughs> <laughs> right? So... But they keep throwing him on TV because, you know, he's charismatic and, you know, he, he's uh, enthusiastic when he makes his point. So, right. Tellog decides to run an experiment to see if we can actually measure performance of forecasting. And he, he put three groups together, right, uh, intelligence community, the academic community, uh, and a group he called the soccer moms, right? These aren't really soccer moms. They're just kind of older people that have time to, you know, solve puzzles. And he gave them really hard forecasting problems, things like, you know, is President Putin going to be assassinated in the next three years? And, you know, what's the probability? Right. And he, graded, he graded him over five years, uh, and he scored him. And who do you think wins this contest? Well, him. I, I think, yeah, I think I buried the lead. All right. It's uh, <laughs> the soccer moms. <laughs> by 40%, right? They win by 40%. All right. And there's lots of reasons for this, but that got me thinking about how we frame risk for our organizations. We shouldn't be saying to ourselves, you know, is it possible that we're going to get hacked sometime in the future? Of course, yes, right. you're going to get hacked. A better forecasting question is, will your organization be materially impacted? Material is important, okay, in the next three years. And the, the time bound is important too, right? Because that's a different question than sometime in the future, right? So, and then we can make very precise probability guesses about that. We can say we're 90% sure that there's a 2% chance that we're going to be materially impacted by an organization or something like that. Uh, and there's books out there now that shows us how to do that math. So I'm very interested in how we move this industry forward to get away from the old heat maps into more precise ways of doing this. So does a CISO's inability to measure cybersecurity risks significantly decrease 
their ability to communicate their financial needs to the C-suite and the board when they're talking about their budgets and what they need to be successful? Yeah, because we suck at this, right? You know, you know most, of us, most of us have come up through the ranks of the technical ranks. I know I have, right? right. And we're pretty good at identifying technical risk. But we, we, we suffer when we try to convey, you know, convert that technical risk into business risk for board members, right? And so they don't understand, you know, there's a vulnerability in, you know, some open source web software that we're running, right? That doesn't mean, make any, that, they don't understand that. What we have to be able to tell them is that it is material to their organization if we don't fix particular problems. So we have to kind of change our language and speak to what they understand. Now, I think there's a big divide when we get, you know, cybersecurity professionals together about whether we can quantify what a, a breach would mean to the, to the firm. We can actually quantify it. I mean, there's a lot of people say that we can't, and then there's other guys say we can. I think you can absolutely quantify it, right? Now, it's still a guess, okay? No, don't get me wrong. It's still... Right. It's still an estimate, but it's an estimate by, you know, cybersecurity professionals with years of experience under their belt. What I'm trying to get to, though, is a more precise guess, right? As opposed to high, medium, and low, we want to be able to give very precise probabilities, right? And know that it's, you know, it's a guess of some sort, but at least it's a, now becomes a math problem. And if we do it right, we can apply Bayes' algorithm to it to keep improving it over time. It's not a one-shot deal. You do an estimate of what the probability is, and then as you gather new evidence, you can add that to the calculation and improve your uh, prediction. So I think it's possible. I, I don't see a lot of people doing it yet. We're trying to figure it out here at Palo Alto Network. So, so how important is for cybersecurity professionals to understand the meaning around the proper nomenclature and verbiage used like risk management, uh, cybersecurity and uncertainty measurement, these types of definitions? I think it's hugely important, all right? And because uh, I think we've done our industry a disservice by insisting that cybersecurity risk is somehow different from any other corporate risk. It's not, it's just risk, mm -hmm. right? In fact, you know, I've, um, I've been in lots of commercial companies now. Um, on their heat map, they always have one to you know, 15 things that they're worried about. Cyber is listed somewhere in there. But I would tell you, cyber is not a risk, it's a vector. It can be a, a, a way to have unbelievable innovation and change to make your company profitable, but it's also a way for bad guys to take you down. So if you're gonna put cyber on your heat map, okay, it needs to be way more precise than just, you know, gee, I'm scared of cyber. I'm doing air quotes so you can see that. <laughs> yeah, right. So if, you know, if, if I wanna to explain to an executive how important it is to, you know, start to measure the risk around their business, not only identify it, but measure it. How can I explain to an executive to even begin start quantifying the risk associated with cybersecurity threats? First, I would tell them just to insist that their, that their security and IT people present risk in the same way that everybody else is presenting risk to, their, to them, right? In, in right. this format. Right. And if you would talk to those other folks, the finance people, the HR people, the legal people, they have really complicated risks also, but they're able to quantify it. Right. Um, we should be able to do that, too. It's, it's an uphill battle trying to get the, the, uh, the engineers to run it like a business, isn't it? Um, I just think it's us not unwilling to try. Right. Uh, you know, you and I have been around for a long time. It's really <laughs> easy for us to say those dumb users that they don't only knew about cybersecurity, everything would be, you know, good. Um, I think it has to be the other way around, okay? These are the folks in charge. We have to cater to what they can understand. 
And they, the reason they're in those positions is that they're really smart and they deal with the risk all the time. We just have to be able to convey it in a language they understand. And these are super smart people in these yeah. positions. They're yeah. wicked smart. And you're right. I think there's a little bit of, um, it's, a bit, it's a big challenge to get them to even grasp or even try to, you know, start to quantify the risk associated with their business. But can the wrong risk management approach actually introduce more risk into their environments? I don't know if it introduces more, but it definitely puts a blind spot on the leaders, right? If you're going through a huge process that's not very scientific, right. uh, it will blind you to what might hit you in the future. You get those uh, black swan events, you know, things that are not likely to happen, but uh, when they do, they completely obliterate your organization. Um, I think it's possible to identify all those, but if you're, if you're doing these really old methods, I don't, somehow I don't think you're going to see those on the horizon. Don't... It, I think, you know, in a way, don't the old methods kind of, uh, I guess, influence executives to put money into places where they might not need it? And, and you know, it's, it's harder to prioritize your, your spend. And, 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 and when, he, when you can't prioritize your spend, I'm not sure that you can actually mitigate as much risk as you would if you had a, you know, a quantifiable measurement. Well, I'm with you on that, right? And, you know, the term of uh, return on investment always pops up in our world. And I hate that idea. There's no return on investment for security spend. You're trying to reduce risk, okay? You're not trying to make money off of this, right? You right. may be able to save some money by doing it smartly, but it's not return on investment. Here's what you should be able to do. You should be able to give your board a, a loss exceedance curve that shows the probability of uh, – and the uh, cost of, of, of a risk to your inherent risk to your organization. One chart, you know, one chart that shows, you know, there's a 10% chance that you might lose a million dollars because of cyber risk, but there's a, you know, a 1% chance that you lose a uh, hundred million. Okay. And we should be able to show that as the inherent risk to the organization. What we need to do exactly after we figure all that out is present that to the leadership and say, are you okay with this? Are you, can you eat this risk that I just showed you that is inherent to the organization? And if they are, then they're fine. We don't have to do anything to the next board meeting. But if they say, oh, no, that's way too much risk, then that's for guys like you and me to sit down and say, oh, well, we can apply people, process, and technology to reduce that risk. So let me go and figure that out. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, measuring their risk appetite for the risk that's presented to them and then executing on the decisions that they make. So Yeah, that's always a thing that's not talked about, right? Because uh, and every organization has their own risk tolerance, right? With, uh, some, people, some organizations are very conservative, some are not. And so it depends on the culture and leadership of the organization you're in. So how important is it for others in the organization, aside from the CISOs and some of the other you know, executives, and information security, let's say developers, for example, how, is it, how, how important is it for developers to understand the risk methodology used to quantify risk in any technology environment? Well, I, I think the way that it flows down to them is right, when we say uh, that we're going to develop, that we're going to use the BSMM, whatever that acronym is for, you know, software development for security, we're going to use those methods for our developers, okay? That puts the burden on them to follow those methods. What we have to do is convey to them why we are doing it. It says, if we do the things it said in this, uh, in this framework, we can reduce our uh, potential material risk by 30% or whatever the number is. So what our job on the downside is to convey that to all of our employees, the reason we are doing some crazy things that they don't, may not understand. 
Right. So, you know, to your point, when they're in the SSDLC process and they're going through each, uh, each phase, they actually understand why they're doing it and right. what risk. And I think that means a lot, especially in this generation. I feel like, you know, it's, it's why do I have to do that? Not just go do it, right? Yeah, because you know, there's that developer down there way down in the hierarchy, right? And he says, oh, God, I got to do this stupid thing. I don't understand it. If you can just get in front of them and say, because we're doing these things, uh, it has reduced our chance for material impact to the organization. He may not agree with it, but at least he knows why. So I, I used to be a police officer, and I'd get this as, as, this all the time. What, what, do, what do you say to an executive that uses the analogy, when a police officer drives down a residential street, they will never know how many crimes they prevented when they try to describe the value of the resources they've employed in cybersecurity, for instance. So you're, and you're applying that to the cybersecurity? Yeah, so like we deploy a tool in the cybersecurity space. How do we know how many attacks we you know, uh, deferred you know, or prevented because of the, you know, the technology or the process or the people that we employed? Um, because we'll never know. It's just like a police officer driving down the street and doesn't know how many crimes he prevented just by his mere presence. Yeah, I think that's probably the wrong metric, right? Uh, one of the metrics that my boss gives me, I, I work for the CEO here at Palo Alto Networks, right? And he, he was, you know, the reason they're CEOs is because they're so smart, right? Uh, here's the metric he gave me to track, and he only gave me one. He says, how many, how many people does it take to respond to an incident um, in your organization? That's, a, you know, an investigation, whether or not it's a real, um, a real breach or just somebody getting halfway in. How many people do you have that re, uh, responds to that? And then if that number is going down, okay, over the years, then you're doing the right thing. Uh, if that number is going up, you probably have a severe problem, right? Huh. Yeah, I thought that was yeah. a very interesting metric. Yeah, that is a very interesting metric. I'm not sure I've ever heard anybody, you know, break it down into one single metric like that, <laughs> specifically that one, I guess. It, but it, you're right, it does tell a story. Yeah, and I like it a lot. It tells, it tells you uh, that how you are responding. Do, do, does your defensive perimeter automatically respond to bad guys so that you don't have to put a body on them? I mean, it, it kind of encompasses a bunch of things like that. It's the reason I like it. So, I mean, you know, I did a lot of research in this space myself, and I think there's an overwhelming uh, amount of evidence in published research that quantitative or probabilistic methods are an effective way to mitigate risk. And, I, you know, I'm on the same page as you 100%. But it seems to me that, you know, like we discussed, there's this common misconception out there held by a lot of CISOs and other executives that include misconceptions about basic statistics. And, you know, they create this, these obstacles to actually measuring risk effectively. So what do we say to the executives that insist that measuring cybersecurity risk with quantifiable methods is academic? That's for, you know, that's for school. That's what you learn in these college classes, but it's not really applicable to the real world. Well, I think it's funny you say that because even the, even the Bayesians, the, you know, for Bayes method, that, you know, the Bayes theorem that we all know about, about how do you deal with these um, probabilities and how you change them over time, okay? And, and I say Bayes because here's the example. We all know what spam filters are, and Bayes theorem is what drives spam filters. We make a prediction that says a particular message might be spam. But as we learn, as that message comes in and we learn more about what spam looks like, we add that to the algorithm. And so we get better and better at finding spam, mess uh, spam messages. And that is the magic of Bayes. But when Bayes wrote his algorithm back in the, you know, I forget, 1740s, okay, he didn't even think it was that big of a deal. He didn't even publish it. He just threw it in a drawer and no one found it until after he died. 
his best friend found it and said, hey, this might be something, and turned it into the Royal Society. Right? So even Bayes right. didn't think it was a good formula. Uh, and But there were two groups of statisticians back in those days. There were the frequentists who said statistics can only be used for data that you have large data sets for. So we can count things and figure out what the probabilities are. They had no interest in what Bayes was doing, which is basically making an estimate and improving that estimate over time. But what happens in the real world is there are huge problem sets where we don't have data for. Problems that we know may come up that we have never seen before. So how do you, you know, forecast those problems? And Bayes is the perfect algorithm for that. And some intrepid scientists uh, joined and used Bayes to solve some really interesting problems. Like you're familiar with uh, Alan Turing and what he did during World War II and, you know, breaking down the Enigma machine, right? Breaking right. The, right. They use Bayes' algorithm to do that. Um, if you're familiar with uh, Hunt for Red October, that great movie with Sean Connery, oh, yeah. that's, based, that's based on a true story. Uh, the sub, there was a Russian submarine that everybody was, was trying to find. The American scientists found that using Bayes' algorithm. Okay, how about that? Um, and the third most interesting one is the scientists at Los Alamos when they were developing uh, the nuclear bomb. One of the scientists, Dr. Ulam, got sick and he was recovering. And he was trying to, he was playing a lot of solitaire just to pass the time. And, he, you know, he's a math guy. So he wonders, he started to wonder if he could predict which hands would be winning hands uh, for solitaire. And he tried a bunch of math formulas, couldn't get it to work. And he said, you know what? I could simulate this on these newfangled computers we have down in the lab. I could actually run simulations on uh, 52 cards, have them randomly deploy 52 cards and then see which ones are winning hands and count how many hits we have compared to how many misses. You know what that's called? That's called the Monte Carlo uh, simulation method, okay? And when he practiced that for solitaire and told his science buddies at Los Alamos, they said, you know what? We can predict the fusion distribution of an atomic bomb by using that exact same method, right? So, so even if the people, most of the scientists didn't think uh, Bayes' algorithm was any good, there's been scientists that solved those problems um, with, with that kind of algorithm over time. And then it changed when we all got personal computers. Back in the uh, early 80s, late, early 90s, scientists can run their own Monte Carlo algorithms, simulations, uh, and using Bayes' algorithm to solve their own problems. And that's when it, it sort of took off, and we could use it for just common problems. So uh, that was a long-winded answer to your question, can we actually solve these problems? Yes, you can. We have to train people like you and me on how to use these new statistical methods. This is great stuff, Rick. I mean, we've got to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. But don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from Rick Howard after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology 
to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover life cycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, the Chief Security Officer of Palo Alto Networks, Rick Howard. So, so Rick, I want to talk in this segment of the show, I want to talk a little bit about the, the security models that, that people have been using and that, you know, some of the new ones that are out in the cybersecurity space. I wanted to ask you, do you still believe that the, the defense and depth mo- uh, security model is effective? Yeah, I haven't really believed in defense and depth for a long time. Um, uh, I'm an advocate of the cyber kill chain model made pop there by the Lockheed Martin research team back in 2010. Many people think the kill chain and the defense in depth are the same thing, just a little bit tweaked. Um, I do not believe so. You know, defense in depth, when I was doing it back when we were all doing it back in the 90s, you know, it was, we would tell our bosses, you know, this would be, this is multi-function uh, overlapping uh, controls for security defense. It would be very complicated. I have a really complicated slide. I would show my bosses to tell them that we were secure. But what it really was is that we all had three tools. We had a firewall, we had an intrusion detection system, and we had antivirus, you know, deployed on the endpoints. And we called that defense in depth. And that worked pretty well in the early days uh, when the adversary was not very mature. Uh, but as they gained experience, uh, the defense and death model didn't stop anybody. Uh, bad guys got around those defenses uh, fairly easily. And it was reasons because we just kind of randomly threw those controls out in the network and hoped that the bad guy would run into them. What changed with the Lockheed Martin kill chain paper was that uh, we said that adversaries, as they attack their victims, regardless of the motivations they have and regardless of the tools that they use, they basically have to do five or six things. You know, they recon uh, victims' network looking for weakness. They craft a tool that will leverage that weakness and they deliver it to some endpoint somewhere. That'd be a laptop, a server, a printer, or something like that. Once they get it on the endpoint, they trick the user into running it so that they can actually own the box. I call that establishing a beachhead. And, and when they've done that, they haven't, um, they haven't successfully completed their mission yet. They just now have a foothold on the victim's networks. Uh, according to Lockheed Martin Kill Chain Paper, the, what they usually do from here is establish a command and control channel so they can download more tools. Uh, and once they do that, they try to traverse laterally in the victim's network looking for the information they've come to steal or to destroy. And once they find it, then they exfiltrate it out through the command and control channel. It turns out that every bad guy regardless of how they do it or what they're 
trying to accomplish, they have to uh, accomplish some set of those uh, sequences that I just laid out. And that is a much better way to set up your defenses because what we're going to do here is put prevention controls at every phase of the cyber kill chain. Not just random controls like we did with defense in depth, but we're going to put something for delivery. We're going to put something down for anti-exploitation. We're going to put something down for anti-malware. We're going to put something down for anti-command and control, for anti-lateral movement, for anti-exfiltration. All geared toward a specific adversary. Not just random controls, but we know that adversaries have to accomplish those steps. So we want to study those adversaries and put the prevention controls in place so that if they manage to sneak by one of the ones that we already knew about, we're going to catch them with the next one. So I'm a full believer in the Lockheed Martin kill chain philosophy. So do you think that organizations have implemented the cyber kill chain model effectively? No, it's really hard. Okay. We all thought that the kill chain paper was going to solve all of our issues, right? Because mm-hmm. it, is, it is a better philosophy, right? But instead of getting that, what we got was, you know, bags of indicators of compromise for and with no context and a gigantic collection of cybersecurity tools. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've been uh, at Palo Alto Networks for a long time. I get to go around and talk to a lot of CISOs and security practitioners. Um, and so for my own scientific data collection, even small organizations have 15 to 20 security tools deployed. Medium sized have, you know, from 50 to 60. And large organizations like banks or let's say the intelligence community, they have over 150 tools deployed. And the dirty secret in the security vendor community is that the vendors make the network defenders manage all that and integrate it. Okay, we put all that work on you, right? right. And we have, we have reached a point in our industry where we cannot, cannot consume one more point product. I don't care if it's the best point product on the planet. I don't have enough people or resources to get it done. So we've known this for a long time, okay? And uh, so the vendors have known that. They've been trying to come up with solutions. What has emerged from that is the cybersecurity platform. Um, all the firewall vendors have them, Palo Alto Networks has them, but Checkpoint, Cisco, all of us have a version of it. But it's basically uh, one simple box that does firewall stuff and prevention controls down the kill chain uh, so that your, their, our customers don't have to manage all that themselves. So when you say point products uh, for our audience, uh, what do you mean by point products? So why, uh, what are point products and why are there so many of them? Well, point products are security tools that are really cool, okay, <laughs> but they don't talk with anything else, right? They don't, they're not integrated <laughs> with any other tool you have. Uh, and it's my experience that uh, you pay for a point product four times, right? You got you to gotta buy the box. You got to buy someone who can maintain it, you know, keep the blinky lights going. Right. You got to have someone who understands the data coming off that box. And lastly, you need someone back in the security operations center collecting the data from all of the boxes to make some sort of coherent threat picture, right? That's a lot. You pay a lot of money to install a point product, right? And and I understand why people buy them, okay? Because in the early days, we had two best practices that we all followed, right? One was vendor in depth, meaning that we would never have a single vendor in our network because we don't trust those bastards, right? Right. So whatever tool you bought, it was always going to be from company A, company B, and company C, right? Um, And so, and I understood why we were doing that back when we were doing defense and death and we only had like three or four tools, right? But now, if you're a medium-sized company or even a big company, 
You cannot manage 150 tools manually and hope to keep up with the bad guy. My boss, he has a saying, he says, you know, we shouldn't bring people to a software fight, okay, because that's why we're losing. We have to accept the idea that we're gonna to have to use automation to stop most of the bad guys. We keep the people to go after the, the, the special cases, but for 99% of it, we should have automation that blocks bad guys automatically and then reserve the people to, uh, to go after those really tough cases, the one percenters. So if I was to describe the main uh, problem with the orchestration of the cyber kill chain, it would be the implementation of too many technologies, would that be? Yeah, I'd say that's right, okay. Right. And, and by the way, all those tools have exploded. The size of your InfoSec staff, they have not. They pretty much stayed the same size. Right. We just keep giving them more tools to manage. Right. So what is the automatic security enterprise orchestration? That is when you have, like I talk about trying to defend your enterprise from the adversary, right? We know that the adversary doesn't change his playbook that often, right? An adversary playbook is... Uh, how do I describe this? You know, if you are, are you a sports guy, George? Oh, yeah. All right, so you're a football fan? Big. All right, so you know that the coaches scout the other teams, right, before yep. they come to your team, and they figure out all the plays they're going to run against their team, right? Um, so, it, unfortunately, there is no cyber stadium that we can all go down and watch what <laughs> the bad guys do, right? <laughs> right. But we all watch bad guys as they infiltrate all of our networks right and so we can understand what an adversary playbook is and it's basically this is one or more hackers running one or more campaigns and campaigns is defined by the time period they run them right they use uh, techniques that our industry can describe using basic standards uh, we use the MITRE attack framework to describe the techniques that we see and when they run those techniques, they leave indicators of compromise in their wake that we can look for those patterns and stop the bad guys, right? And the reason our industries have trouble with this is we've been trying to manually keep up with that. And there's gazillions of attacks every day because the adversary has automated those attacks so much that we can't keep up with it. In order to do automatic orchestration, you need a security platform or security tool set that will automatically update itself, learn from the bad guys, discover new things automatically, and put prevention in place automatically so our humans don't have to. And then, once you get that in place, you can reserve your uh, elite uh, super white hatters you know, to go find the really interesting bad guys who nobody has picked up yet. Right. So I just want, I want to switch gears here for a second and talk about a couple of different things. Sure. Um, as we're always talking about partnerships and how important partnerships are in the cybersecurity world. How do we ensure better partnerships are built between the private sector and the public sector? Because it just, you know, it just never seems to be where it's supposed to be. Well, I think one of our mistakes in the private sector is that we expect the governments to give us all the cool intelligence they have as if they have some monopoly on what's really good intelligence. Right, right. And I'm telling you, they just don't, okay? All the cybersecurity vendors, Palo Alto Networks, but all the others, you know, we have giant intelligence collection engines because our customers buy our products and deploy them everywhere. You know, we have, at Palo Alto Networks, we have 50,000 customers, all with one or more firewalls, all collecting intelligence. We have a giant intelligence collection engine that rivals anything that the NSA might have, except for some of the niche stuff that they want to go after that I'm not interested in. You know, they're, they're in the spy business. We're in the network defender business, right? right. 
So I think we should get away from the idea that governments have some special secret sauce that none of us have. That's just not the case. What I think we can find some common ground between private and public is that we, when, the, when the public, when the government finds something interesting that they view is going to be has a huge impact uh, in our nation or in our world, they should have an easy way to get that out to the security vendors so that we can deploy the prevention controls in all of our products. Um, I, I see that as the future of the private-public uh, partnership. Can you talk a little bit about the Cyber Threat Alliance and what that's all about? Yeah, this came about about five years ago. Uh, four cybersecurity vendors decided we were going to break away from the pack and not compete on intelligence. All right, uh, at Palo Alto Networks, we don't sell cyber threat intelligence. We're going to give you, we're going to give anybody intelligence who can consume it. Uh, what we think is more important is competing on the a product instead, what you do with that intelligence. So back in the uh, day, about five years ago, four security vendors got together and had the same idea. It was us, uh, Semantic, uh, Fortinet, uh, and Intel uh, McAfee. Okay, they're McAfee now, all right? So we started playing around with this idea, and it has really gained some steam, all right? Last year, we formed it into a nonprofit, so it's an actual entity that works and sustains itself. We hired uh, Michael Daniel to be the president of it. Um, he's uh, President Obama's former cyber czar. Um, we have uh, six charter members, meaning the, the companies that are uh, in charge of steering the, the alliance uh, in its future direction. So it's the four original plus Checkpoint plus Cisco. And we have about 17 or 18 uh, contributing members who are just in it to share threat intelligence. Um, and so we formed the nonprofit last year at RSA. At this year's RSA was our one-year anniversary. We're very proud. And what we share in the alliance is adversary playbooks, that complete set of intelligence that we gain as the adversary traverses the cyber kill chain. So is, is there any kind of dissemination of intelligence from that organization, or how does it work? I mean, everybody submits these. It works these because, yeah, no, it's a great question, right? So if you, so you can think of the Cyber Threat Alliance as kind of an advanced ISAC. And, okay. you know, ISACs are information sharing and analysis centers. They've been around since yep. like 1999. President Clinton signed the presidential decision directive to form these things. All right, and some of them are really good, like the financial sector ISAC, or, you know, some of the best uh, ISAC work um, out there. But even the best ISACs have two hard problems they haven't been able to solve. The first one is uh, not everybody shares, okay? Even in the financial sector ISAC, you know, only the big guys share like Citibank and Bank of America because they have lots of people and lots of money. But the small local banks, those local community banks, you know, they have two guys and a dog in the back room. You know, they're, they're managing the firewall and the printer and they're getting coffee in the morning. <laughs> right. they, they do not have time to share anything. So they mostly just consume. So we realized that in the Cyber Threat Alliance, and we said, as a rule, you can't be in the club unless you share, and we measure it daily. You get a point, you get points for submitting adversary playbook intelligence, and you have to meet a minimum threshold or you can't be in the club at all, all right? So that's point one. The second problem that ISACs have is, I call it uh, manually crossing the last mile with intelligence. Because even if you are receiving the financial sector ISAC intelligence, the receiver, that small community bank, has to read it, decide that it's important to them, decide what to do about it, and then they have to do it. 
Most people never get around to it. It takes too much work to respond to everything. In the Cyber Threat Alliance, because we are security vendors, we already have the way to update our own products automatically. At Palo Alto Networks, when my threat intelligence team, Unit 42, discovers a new indicator of compromise, we can convert that into multiple prevention controls down the kill chain, distributed to those 50,000 customers around the world in five minutes. In five minutes. It's an amazing capability. That's quick. All the other vendors, in the, I know it's amazing, right? I wish I had quick. that when I was young. I wouldn't look the way I do right now. Okay, so right. Um, the, all the other vendors have similar capability, right? So if the alliance is working on all cylinders, we can deploy new prevention controls for a newly discovered threat around the world in minutes to hours, okay? And that's something that none of the ISACs can get done. So everyone's, everyone's fighting for talent out there. Switch gears again. You know, everyone's looking for talent. I think there's just, you know, it's, everyone's in the colleges, and it seems like we're going deeper and deeper uh, into the school systems and into the lower grades to even start developing this talent way before uh, they actually are going to be hired by anybody. Um, do you think that there's a talent crisis right now in cybersecurity? Yeah, I do think there's a talent crisis. Um, but I think it's mostly because we're shooting ourselves in, in our feet. We shoot ourselves in our feet. Is that the, is that the right way to say that? <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> Shoot ourselves in the foot. Yeah. There you go. I knew there was some <laughs> weird um, uh, There is a shortage of talent, but uh, I think the estimates are that there'll be a two million employee shortfall by 2019 in cybersecurity. Right. But there's a couple of reasons for that. Right. And one thing is uh, we are not very diverse. Right. Right. Uh, you look at the stats. Women in tech make up about 25 percent of the employees out there. If you want to consider cybersecurity, it's only 11%. Right. And if you, if you add an adjective to that, like Muslim or Christian or, you know, black or Hispanic, okay, it drops down to 1%, okay? And that's just ridiculous, right? Even if you don't, even if you're not a big diversity and inclusion fan like I am, uh, just doing simple math tells you that if you're going to fill that 2 million employee shortfall, Half of the people have got to come from women and minorities. They just have to, right? So we have to figure that out, right? And this is a man problem, okay, George? This is you and me figuring this out. This is the women right. problem because there are giant pockets of women who are qualified to take these jobs. Uh, we're just not very good at bringing them in because it sounds easy, right? Well, what's the problem? Just go hire women. Go find them and hire them, right? Right. Or, uh, but it turns out that that's, everything's more complicated than you think. Uh, it's really a three-stage problem. First, you got to find talent, uh, and they're out there. I would tell you, I went to the um, Grace Hopper Security Conference last year. It's the largest collection of female technicians on the planet, and I could not collect the resumes fast enough. There are so many talented women out there looking for jobs. So they're out there. You have to go find them. Um, and the second thing is you have to convince them to come work for you. So if you have a bro culture culture in your organization where they're right. And on the women, why right. would they come work for you? Why I wouldn't. Okay, why would you want to do that? Right. Yeah. So, so that's the second problem we have to solve, and the third one is once you get them, you have to you have to keep them. Right. To retain them. Yeah, you can't let misogynistic uh, dudes uh, run them out because because uh, men are horrible mostly and, uh, for lots of conscious bias and unconscious bias things. Right. So I'm looking at the men out in your audience. Right. If you're hiring somebody this year for some job, some cybersecurity job, and you're rifling through your pile of resumes, 
if half of those resumes aren't minorities or women, you need to go back to your HR department and say, I want a different pile. Okay, because you can't pick them unless you got resumes that have them there. Sorry. Oh, so that's the that's the call to action. So consider, considering the talent pool out there, is it possible right now for for organizations to set a goal that half the people they hire will be women into the organization? If it's you know into a cybersecurity organization, is that practical? I don't know if that's the I don't know if that's the right metric. I I think what happens is the the metric should be for every job you have open, you should have equal amounts of uh, uh, minorities and women uh, there for the uh, who can to, compete for to it. compete for the job. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that was the right metric either. I see organizations doing that though, and I don't know. I think they're. I don't think that's the right way to go about it. How would How would you do it? I mean, I I would have the people compete for it, but I would go out and and you got to find the people to compete for it. To your point, I I don't think you know you can't just sit there and say, expect that you know open up a job and say okay, I'm going to hope that women come apply for this job. That's and true. hopefully I can get some women to compete for this position. I think you really yeah. have to be aggressive and go out um, and find women. And I also have, to, I think that organizations need to promote, um, uh, you know, projects, exercises, organizations that, that help um, women into technology and cybersecurity early on. Because I think if you walk into a computer science class in college right now, it's all male. All- yeah, I saw I saw an interesting chart a couple of years ago on LinkedIn. It was a it was a measurement of women and men going to college in the engineering disciplines. Yeah, from the mid seventies till the late nineties, and it was a constant rise in the volume of men and women taking on those uh, subjects until about nineteen eighty two eighty three, and the woman's line drastically drops off. Okay, the man the men line keeps going higher, but the woman line drops off in the the theory was, which I, I don't know if it's true or not, but I liked it. He said that was right when um, the personal computer came to the homes. And for whatever reason, the personal computer became a boy's toy, not a girl's toy. Right. It went into one of the kids' rooms. It went into the boys' rooms. And so the boys got a head start on the girls through elementary school and high school. And so by the time they got to college, the women felt they were so far behind that they couldn't compete. I'm not so sure that's what it was, but I thought that was an interesting, interesting. Uh, yeah, that is interesting. I haven't heard that before, but it's interesting. I, yeah, you know, it's, you know definitely because I, you know, we're trying to figure out what the problem is. We talk about it on the show a lot. We've had a lot of people on um, to give their ideas about it, but you're right; it's something that we definitely have to solve. But Rick, it was great having you on the show. Um, I hope to have you back often. It was great to have you. Thanks, George. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, thank you for having me on. So thanks so much. We, we run out of time, folks, but before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 